You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Rachel Jones. Rachel is founder and chief executive officer of Syntax Health, a redesigned health company. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about Syntax Health. What's your elevator pitch? Absolutely. My pleasure. So clearly, one of the biggest gaps in transforming the way care is delivered in this country is the tension between insurance companies and doctors. Value-based care is a concept that aims to change that dynamic. The simple premise, organize our healthcare system in a way that compensates the provider care for delivering value to their patients. So value-based care is an alternative payment method that compensates providers for delivering value versus volume. And there's a lot of hesitancy about going into value-based payment. As an industry, we are sort of stuck in place. Insurance companies who pay for care and providers who deliver care are often deadlocked in manual processes and efficiencies and imprecision. And these fundamental issues create friction and really underlie a persistent lack of transparency and trust. Syntax Health believes that value-based care is a team sport. That's why we're building a virtual workspace for payers and providers, their actuarial teams, their analytic teams, and their contracting teams to more effectively collaborate in successful design and implementation of value-based programs. We're about turning stakeholders into teammates and making value-based care work for everyone involved. So for those out there who aren't totally familiar with the concept, what exactly is value-based care? Why is this transformative? Yeah. So traditionally, since healthcare became an organized sort of industry many, many decades ago, the primary reimbursement mechanism has been what's called fee-for-service. Said simply, that means you go to the doctor for a cold or you go for a test or you go for a stomach ache. There's a whole lot of codes or or they call diagnosis codes or, or coded ways of documenting what was done. I drew blood. I took a test. I took your temperature. I gave you a prescription. All those things amount to a certain fee, right? Or reimbursement amount. And the physician or their office submits an itemized bill to the payer, that Medicare, the government, or a private insurance company. And that's been the prevailing method for many decades, like I said. Problem with that is that that method of treating the specific condition or the diagnosis can also not consider the whole person, right? If you're coming in and you're a diabetic and you're coming in with foot pain, there are certain procedures that the physician should be looking for because it could be an early warning sign of something that's exacerbating your condition. So value-based care says, we're not going to just reimburse you for the thing that you do, doctor or hospital. We're going to also incentivize you through another reimbursement mechanism to think about holistic care, to think about access to care, you know, preventive measures, prenatal care, all those things that help to prevent costs 
help to save lives and to make a healthier community. Beautiful. And in doing all of this, what is your favorite part of your job and why? Oh, man, I love that. I love that thought. I've been so fortunate in my career to have worked with some amazing people and on some challenging problems that I think create a positive impact in some corner of the world. And this has been sort of my go-to formula for how I evaluate opportunities. So as I considered my next role, I knew I had to prioritize three things. Autonomy, the ability to set and execute a vision, collaboration, working together with like-minded people on a challenging problem, and significance, contributing to something of value that has a net positive impact. So in taking this role as founder and CEO, I found a renewed sense of, of purpose and energy. So my favorite part, Laura, and maybe I would say if I'm being fully transparent, a little daunting at times, is that my team and I can co-create. We can blaze a new trail and birth a company that will have a positive impact in our industry. Yes, yes. I think having that impact, especially in the healthcare space, is so... Everybody says they want to do it, but not everybody does it well. And it sounds like that's a, a big connection that you're looking to make here. What's one of the biggest issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? I think for me, it's knowing that the playing field of vendors in this value-based care space is pretty crowded. So my biggest issue for our company is how can we carve mental space and create differentiating value among potential investors, partners, clients, and of course, our team, both at Syntax and within Redesign Health. Our core message is the same. We create value by accelerating value-based care adoption through bridging the gap between insurance companies and providers of care, ultimately improving care outcomes for millions of people in the healthcare industry. But my approach adjusts based on the WIFM principle. I'm sure you know what that is, right? What's in yes, it for me? Yes, but tell everybody out there. Exactly. Yes. So WIFM is what's in it for me. In other words, while a stakeholder may understand the how, and they might even believe the why, we won't break through and create mental space and that connection to matter if we don't address the what. So an example of this might be, if I'm talking to an investor, the WIFM would be, What's the total market opportunity? How much, how much do you think your company can scale? How many potential customers do you think you can capture? In other words, the investor is going to want to know what return on the investment can you promise me if I, you know, fund your company? Alternatively, if I'm talking to a client, the with them for them might be, well, how will your product solve my unique problem? How can I demonstrate that you know, we understand their problem and that our product can solve it in a measurable way. So clients are also looking for a return on investment, but their perspective may be time and it may be dollars spent as compared to doing business with another company or remaining with the status quo. So ultimately, we have to show that there is value that's greater than the cost of doing nothing. And in doing all of this convincing, all this influence here, who was the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to? So if I think about the different roles I've had throughout my career, the thing that comes to mind is any turnaround situation is, is pretty challenging. But particularly in a role that I had recently where I was hired to be leader of a P&L that was going through a significant set of challenges. Can you tell everybody what a P&L is for those who don't know? Oh, I am so sorry. I'm using jargon again. So p 
PL stands for profit and loss, but essentially it's a business unit of the company. So my responsibility is to both grow, right, and, and grow the business, grow the product, but also manage margin and manage the bottom line. So it's the PL means you're sort of thinking about both sides of the coin, if you will. Yes, sure. And for those of you who don't know out there, I mean, right now we Rachel and I are talking because you're launching this new amazing medical healthcare initiative, but you've run huge organizations prior to this. So there's, there's, yeah, that's the perspective that we're bringing into this as well. What are some of the organizations that you've run in the past? Absolutely. So prior to this role, I've worked at a company called Coativity, where I ran a leadership or business unit for our quality, our network and our risk applications, our products. Prior to that, I worked on the insurance side at companies such as Anthem and Health First. And way back, I worked, I started my career in tech actually at um, Trizetta, which is now Cognizant. So I've had this unique flavor of payer, provider, and tech kind of all coming together in this new role. Right. Okay, great. So keep going. I'm glad you gave me that segue. So absolutely, in most turnaround situations, your biggest role, I think, is to connect with a team. And a team like this one, when I mentioned before that I had sort of inherited and hired into this this new role, they had been through some significant challenges, Laura. Imagine for a moment an outsider coming in on the tail end of a huge merger between two very different organizations, culturally very different, geographically very different. The bottom was falling out with clients that were terming their contracts. We had a number of long-term staff, including senior management who had left. And so the team that remained were really going through survivor's remorse, right? They felt neglected, rejected, and defeated. And so I thought really hard about how I could reach them. How could I inspire them to take ownership and action, which I thought would ultimately lead to a shift in the energy and perspective. I use the word energy a lot, you'll see, because I do believe that energy drives action. And it really does connect those two pieces. And so I turned to one of my favorite communication mantras, unleashing potential for high-performing teams, clarity of goal, clarity of role. Clarity of goal, clarity of role. Is that correct? Clarity of goal? Clarity of goal, clarity of role. And, and those two pieces are anchoring points, I think, for unleashing potential of any high-performing team. And so what I did was I met with each of the senior managers and, and VPs to hear their top-of-mind concerns, get them kind of get it all out, you know, <laughs> sort of 24 pity party style. But also in each conversation, really ensured that I was intentional about what our goal was and making sure they understood what our goal was and the purpose that I saw for what we could achieve as, a, as an organization. And then helping them really understand how the product that they were responsible for, how they could play a part in helping to achieve our, our, our turnaround. And I made it clear what my expectations were about their role and their fit into that picture and assured them that I would be their partner in execution. And I saw my role as removing as many barriers as I could to help them achieve their goals. And so I think the benefit of all that was it kind of created a ripple effect where they met with their teams and carried on that message and so forth and so on. And I think, you know, it, it really changed the energy. Again, there's that energy word, right? And after a few weeks, a few months, we started to see that shift and we started to see alignment come through as a team where we really bonded together and said, you know what? Everybody loves an underdog. Everybody loves that story. Let's show the organization what we can do and what's possible. 
And I'm proud to say 18 months later, we did just that. We grew the business. We retained our customers. In fact, we had one of the highest measures of satisfaction in terms of our, our, our NPS score and our KPIs around satisfaction that the business unit had ever seen. An NPS score for people out there, we're talking about net promoter score, like how many would people who have experienced your services refer you to others, scale of one to five or something along those lines, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Nice, nice. And in, so with this then, in going from that's where you came in to help write the ship and pull other teams together. What's an important lesson that you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? Yeah, I reflected on this one and, and kind of went way in the way back machine 25 years, 25 plus years ago. I, I think about myself, Laura, as an accidental leader. I, I didn't set out in my career path to achieve a certain title or position. And, you know, I, I didn't really think about myself as a leader going out, but I, I realized over the years, and I'm, you might be familiar with this concept of Clifton Strengths Finder. So I took that assessment a couple times actually, but the first time I took it, I saw that my top strengths were futuristic, significance, and communicator. So this means that I'm constantly imagining how I can make things better. I'm drawn to work that creates an impact and that matters and makes a difference. And I'm fairly good at articulating the messages that I want to convey. So when I became this overnight accidental leader, when I worked at a tertiary hospital back in the day, and you know those strengths were critical. Okay, what's a tertiary hospital? So tertiary hospital, thank you again. I have to remember that everybody's not in healthcare like I am. <laughs> so tertiary is, is another word for saying academical medical center. So it takes, it has an ER, it has a teaching hospital, a nursing home facility. It's many, many things like a hospital system, if you will. It was in a very urban community in, in, in New Jersey. And in that, in that role, I realized that leadership is simply the act of getting things done through others, especially essentially multiplying the effort that you'd otherwise be able to do yourself. And we get things through others by get things done through others by doing three things well. We paint a vivid picture of what the future can look like when the thing is done. We link a meaningful and positive impact that will result from doing the thing. And we communicate clearly what the steps are to do the thing. And so if you're familiar with Simon Sinek, who's one of my favorite authors, he talks about starting with why. And I think for me as a leader, one of the most important lessons was how can I clearly communicate the purpose and the value of what our team is doing and hoping to achieve? And I think that's what creates an effective leader. That's beautiful. I don't think I could have said that better myself. So go on to definitely check out Simon Sinek's TED Talk. His Is it... How leaders inspire action in others, yes. something along yes. those lines. Start the title with why. His, uh, yeah, and his so, book is start, start with why was his book. Why. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Uh, amazing, amazing. It's he's got a few references that are going to make you go wait. How old is like he references MP3 players and DVRs and stuff? Oh so, my god, this has yeah. been a few years old. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, the principles are are, are absolutely uh, unquestionably still relevant uh, from minute to minute. And now, all right, Rachel, so this brings us to the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. And this is your opportunity to speak directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Well, speaking of books, there's a book I've recently become obsessed with. It's called Essentialism by Greg McCowan. 
I've listened to the audio recording at least four times. I bought everybody on my team a copy and I actually designed our offsite around this core lessons. That's safe to say, I think it's a great book. <laughs> I love it so much. Yes. For everybody out there, we'll put the link in the show notes. So please do not try to take notes on your thumbs while you're driving the car to write down the book. We, no, 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 because we don't want you to need healthcare by driving your car off the road or into a phone pole or something along those lines. So we'll take care of you later. Come on back. Go on, Rachel, tell us about your challenge. No, absolutely. So in the book, the author tells a story about a coach who proudly declared, we always win in reference to his team. But win in this case stood for what's important now. And it's a mindset that he's coached his players to embrace on and off the field. At any given moment, there's a dozen things we could do with our time. A dozen plays you could run, right? But the key is to focus and ask yourself, what's important now? And what's the next best step I could take to advance my goal, my task, my project five yards down the field, whatever it is to move forward, right? So my challenge to your audience and to the listeners today is what's your win? What's important now? What's the one thing you could do to help advance whatever that thing is forward? And that's so important and yet so counterintuitive in many ways, because we feel like we have to say yes to everything. And Steve Jobs is a great one to talk about how leadership is about saying no no to about 90% of the things that are on your plate. And so in this sense, it may not be that you're saying no to them permanently, but it's about saying no to them now. You'll get to them later. But how do you figure out when there's 12 things that all seems like they need to be done yesterday, making that decision? Okay, well, you can't just sit there and spin on picking one and then saying, but I should be working on these other 11. Pick one, get it done, focus and move on. And, and if that's a harder decision for, for many of us than it, we really think it should be. And yet it is. You nailed it. And it's the discipline, right? It's the discipline of doing less, but better. And it's, it's so critical to changing really everything in how you organize your life, your play, your relationships. And it's a force multiplier for me, as I've learned to adopt these principles is, is really focusing on what's important now. And now is the key word, the power of now. I love that phrase too. It's the discipline of doing less better, not doing less better, like doing less well <laughs> or doing less in total and doing what, if, but it's recognizing you do have to pick and choose and, but whatever you do, finally choose on, then do that with the absolute greatest focus, greatest intention, greatest attention to detail, et cetera. So be your best at whatever you do finally select that does not end up on the editing room floor. Terrific. So now, all right, we've talked about a few successes. But everybody has bumps along the road on that road to success. So what's a communications-related mistake you've made? Oh, man. How much time do we have? I'll tell <laughs> you. I'll tell you this, that I grew up in a family of over-talkers. I'm Jamaican by heritage and by birth. And, you know, we're animated people where we show our engagement by over-talking, by being boisterous and loud. <laughs> and in the world of work, over-talking is a kiss of death. I remember my first 360 review after my first year as a product manager, working with developers and, and software engineers. I came into that role so full of zeal, Laura. The product was one that I used as a client, and I was all too familiar with the pain. And I really felt like this is my opportunity to make a difference and to make the product so much better for everybody like me who was using the tool, right? And I, so I couldn't help myself from jumping in with lots of input and feedback and you know, all kinds of, of advice during the design sessions. And in my mind, I was being so helpful. 
right? I was showing interest and excitement and I was bebopping and scatting, right? It was music to me. To the development team, it was noise. It was chaos. It was not good. And worse yet, they found it disrespectful. Wow. And that, that was really what really got me because that was not my intention at all. And the overwhelming feedback on my 360 was, Rachel is bright and energetic, but she's too opinionated and not a great listener. She doesn't respect the input of the team. Ouch. Ouch. Right? Yes. And that's, there's, there's so many people, I, I think broadly speaking, there's kind of, well, there's a continuum, of course, but we're going to talk about the extremes on either end that culturally there are groups that play verbal basketball and there are groups that play verbal bowling. And, you know, we, we talked about this the other day and I may have mentioned this in, in a prior episode at some point, but the, the verbal basketball players, I mean, my family's Italian. We are definitely more <laughs> the basketball players, you know, grossly speaking, you know, the Arab cultures, the Caribbean cultures, the Latino cultures, lots tend to be very like if uh, the Eastern European cultures, if at least three people aren't talking all at once, then that means nobody's interested, right? It's not conversation. There's no engagement. People aren't listening because they're not e- eager to participate. But the other side of the coin are the verbal bowlers where, no, there's very clear and specific rules in turn-taking. Who's allowed to talk when? How long someone's allowed to talk? What interruption means? You know, you they stand up, they take the ball and everybody watches them prepare and throw it down the lane. We see how many pins knock down. We maybe comment together, wait till score is taken, that person sits, and then the next person stands up to talk. As opposed to the basketball players where there's like eight people on the court all at once, 10 people, and they're all scrambling for the ball at the same time. And that's what a game's supposed to look like. You get a bowler trying to play basketball, they get run over. You get a basketball player on the on the bowling lane and people are like, sit down. Where are you going? <laughs> What's your hurry here? In fact, so, you'll, you'll fall because you're not supposed to be over the line. <laughs> right, right. You'll slip. That's even a bad place to be. Exactly. You'll land on your tailbone. Exactly. Uh, metaphorically or otherwise. So the, uh, you know, of course, more stereotypically, we're talking to uh, more East Asian cultures and whatnot. So it's not to say that in either group, you won't have moments and groups and conversations that go into the other direction, but just the natural inclination of a person to want to jump in versus to want to sit back and prefer the structured turn-taking roles is a very different place. So definitely know what game the group is playing when you walk into the room. Yes, absolutely. Great lesson there. And I, I learned about sort of three C's there, communication, consensus, building and collaboration. I think it's this really important to listen as much as, and sometimes even more than you speak, right? And, and asking those clarifying questions and don't assuming that silence equals agreement or commitment. It just could equal frustration because you haven't let them talk. <laughs> yeah. Or it could just mean somebody's thinking. I mean, here's a crazy thought. Somebody wants to think before they talk. I mean, who who would have thought, you know? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then what is an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with someone on your team? I know this is an area that most people may not enjoy, those critical conversations. It's not great to deliver a message to someone that they're not making the mark. But I hold a point of view that it's actually one of the most gracious things you can do as a leader. At one point, as a new VP, I had a a management restructuring and I inherited an underperformer. He'd been underperforming for some time, actually, and was essentially bouncing from team to team because there was resistance to confronting him. He'd been there a long time. He had a lot of seniority, a lot of friends. 
And his negligence was damaging because our team was responsible for reporting an insight that would influence pricing, which could then impact revenue. So pretty big deal and a pretty high exposure role. But again, long-term team member and the team did not want to confront his performance issues. And so, again, my point of view is I set people free, right? I set people free to do the thing that they're supposed to be doing and they're actually able to do well because I don't think it feels well to be underperforming. Most people know when they're not hitting the mark. And I have this theory around seat on the bus, right? A team, right? We're trying to get to one direction. We're all together on this bus ride. And some people might be in the front of the bus, the leader, right, who's driving the bus. Some people might be in the back of the bus, checking out the equipment, making sure everything is comfortable and safe. And everybody has their seat on the bus in their position that they're playing. And sometimes when someone's underperforming, the conversation might look like you're in this seat on the bus. But to be most effective for the team, we're going to change your seat on the bus to a different part of the organization or team, right, where your skills and your strengths can match. Other times, you may have to leave the bus. This might be your stop. And I think that's gracious because when you're trying to pound something out of someone that's not there, it doesn't do you any favors. It drags the team down. Your high performers lose energy and interest because they're like, why am I working so hard when this person's getting by? And it's not good for the person who's underperforming because, again, it doesn't feel good to keep trying and not hitting the mark. So I think it's gracious and an act of, of great respect to say, Listen, we've, we've done all these things. We've given these tools. You've given these training, but it's just not a fit. I'm going to do what I can to help you find a new place in the organization, or I'm happy to be a reference for another opportunity outside because I do see that you are you know, a hard worker. It just not has been performing up to our standard. And I think those conversations are honest, are transparent, and are, and really show a lot of respect for that person and for your team as well. Absolutely. People need to feel like they're valued and. That can be both compared to how they're treated compared to other people on the team, as well as just for the work that they're doing. And they can tell when they're not. There's nothing worse than feeling like no one appreciates me here. Either they just don't appreciate what I do, or I know that I'm not feeling successful. So something's off. So to to have that humane conversation, which may not feel great in the moment, but leads to something greater for them. Finally, Rachel. If somebody in your organization wanted to move up into a senior leadership role, aside from technical expertise, what's the one skill they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? Yeah, I love pouring into young people. And it's one of the things I consider myself very passionate about is to mentor and support the next generation of leaders. But what I look for most is a sense of owner's mindset. I look for, does this person have a sense of radical accountability? And that means to me, if you're assigned something, but the something that you're assigned to do, the task or goal has six other dependencies and rely on different teams, you don't just sit around and say, well, I guess, you know, I can't get my work done because they haven't gotten their work done. No, you have an owner's mindset, which means you have complete accountability and responsibility to get the thing done. So you're going to raise the issue, you're going to chase it down, you're going to follow it all the way through to have a closed loop impact, right? So that you're showing that whatever you're given, you're going to be a steward of that responsibility and make sure you see it all the way through. That stewardship notion is really important. That that notion of I have been entrusted with this and it is up to me to take care of it for others. We hear that word a lot in things like asset management or in in and whatnot, but we don't tend to think of it often in terms of our role 
in the organization and what we are stewards of. Yeah, it's so key to me because I do think that to whom much is given, much is required. And you, you know, all of us in today's economy, even in rich, you know, in times of wealth and times of scarcity, all of the things that we're asked to do, someone is paying for that. Someone is investing time, resources in that. So I think whether or not you're managing a financial asset, a data asset, a product asset, you and someone who's on the tail end of that, receiving that asset, is almost like an invisible bargain or an invisible contract that says, my role is to support you getting your job done to the thing that I'm you know, offering. And so I'm going to take that personally, and I'm going to take an owner's mindset of that, and I'm going to be a steward to make sure that my piece of it is as is done with as much excellence as possible. Because I respect that, you know, we have that that sort of hidden, unseen contract between us. Yes, yes. I, you know, I think you and I could talk forever, and I'm going to we're going to find a way to have another conversation about all this kind of stuff. So, for the moment, though, Rachel, how can people learn more about you and Syntax? Absolutely. So we are still in what we call stealth mode. So we're not officially launched yet. We'll have our website up soon. But in the meantime, we are a part of Redesign Health, which is an amazing company that's launched over 40 companies in the last four years, all around making a positive impact in transforming healthcare. So you can check out redesignhealth.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there. And I know Lori will put my links and whatnot in the chat. Of course. Yes. And reach out to Rachel, connect with Rachel on LinkedIn and let her know that you heard her here first. With that, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And to everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time joining us today, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, and more so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.